All right. Recording in progress. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha, Friday, January 28th, 2022. We have a lot to talk about today. We got a lot of mishpatim still, still to cover, both the Torah portion and laws, because that is what the focus of this parsha is on. Okay, so Torah reading from mishpatim. I just shared my screen with you. Reading number five, Exodus chapter 23, verse number six. Here we go. The Torah says, You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor man in his lawsuit. And that means either way, either for good or for not good. No perversion of justice, whether you think, oh, he's a poor man, it doesn't matter, I'll just, you know, yeah, let, let the poor man lose because anyway, what's the big deal? You know, no, I'm not going to get any pushback. That's not kosher. If he's right, he's right. If he's, victor- if he's right in the lawsuit, he's right. And, and conversely, don't throw the judgment his way because you have compassion on him because he's a poor man. Whatever is right is right. You cannot mess with judgment. Justice, and we did this at the end of uh, the session two days ago. If it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. You can have an extra layer, an extra judicial layer on top of that, but you can't pervert justice. Let's continue. Midvar Shekhar Tirchak, distance yourself from a false matter. It doesn't say don't lie. It says distance yourself from a false matter. That's even more than just don't lie. That's like if, if it smacks of untruth, go, all, go the other direction. And do not kill a truly innocent person or one who has been declared innocent, for I will not vindicate a guilty person. What that means, that means is that uh, certainly in the, in the case of law and order, right, somebody who's innocent should not be killed based on, on shoddy evidence. Um, don't don't um, persecute someone who's declared innocent. And also don't vindicate someone who's guilty. It works both ways. If someone's guilty, they're guilty. If someone's innocent, they're innocent. Let's continue once again. Um, advice for judges. You shall not accept a bribe. No bribe taking. For a bribe will blind the clear-sighted, will blind the clear-sighted and corrupt words that are right. This is a powerful statement. Bribery, taking a bribe, is going to blind the one who has a clear vision. You might have a clear, you might be clear-sighted. You might have a clear vision. You might be looking at something clear with, with open eyes. But when you take a bribe, even when you think you're being objective and, and clear-sighted, it's going to be corrupt. And it's going to corrupt words that are right. In other words, it's not someone who is taking a bribe because they have the intention to throw the case in a negative way, to, 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 to do false uh, judgment. They, they're going to tell themselves, this is how the Talmud understands it. A per, the judge is going to tell themselves, look, I'm going to judge what I think is right anyway. So let me take a little cash. No promises. You want to give me money to pay me off? Sure. I'm not promising I'm going to rule like you, though. Right? I'm still going to rule the way I think is right. But I'm just taking a bribe. The Torah says, you can't pull that off. You cannot pull off a righteous judgment, an unbiased judgment, after taking a bribe. Even if you think you're going to be impartial, you're not going to be impartial. That's the key idea. So someone who's corrupt and is taking a bribe to be corrupt, obviously that's wrong and obviously that's not okay. The Torah is saying even more. Someone who thinks they're not corrupt, someone who thinks they're still going to judge impartially. But once you take a bribe, you're finished. By the way, this a, a, a very real application of this and a prevalent application for you and I 
is when we give advice to someone close to us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is the advice that we're giving truly in their best interest or am I a little too negebedavr? Am I, is it, that means, am I, am I a little too close to really assess this impartially? In other words, is my bribe of what I could get out of this perhaps, is it clouding my judgment even when I think that it's not, even when I think that I'm giving you unbiased, impartial, you know, uh, good advice? And if we think that we might have a little bit of a bias, either we shouldn't give the advice, we shouldn't give any advice, or we should at least give a disclaimer. You know, I'm not the most impartial person. I'm not totally free from bias, but I think such and such. But at least you're letting them know that it's not, that you're, you're aware that you can't be unbiased in this situation. Anyway, I'm not going to give specific examples because we can all think in our own lives, in our own relationships, specific examples. Let's continue. Verse number nine. And you shall not oppress a stranger. I believe this is possibly the second time already that, um, that this notion is being stated by not oppressing a stranger. For you know the feelings of the stranger since you were strangers in the land of Egypt. In other words, you know exactly what it's like to be a stranger. You were a stranger for 210 years. And you know what it's like to abuse, to other, to, 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 to be harsh toward the stranger. Don't do that to the stranger relative to you. It's really a, a message for all time, but it's also a message for when the Jewish people will, will end up in the land of Israel. And there's going to be other people there. So how do you relate? Right? Do you other them? Do you, do you make them second class? Or do you welcome them? Don't oppress the stranger. This is a very important mitzvah. Let's continue. Verse 10. Six years. This Torah portion, it moves. Moves quickly. Um, in fact, by count, there are... Give me a second. I had the count over here before. 53 mitzvot. 53 laws. That means of the 613 mitzvot of the Torah, 53 on this week's Torah portion. That's a lot. It's a big percentage of the 613 are right here. Six years, verse 10. Six years you may sow your land and gather in its produce. Six years, your land is your land. You work it, you plow it, you sow it, you gather the produce, you do the whole deal. But in the seventh year... You shall release it and abandon it. That means it's not yours. Year seven, the Shemitah year, sabbatical year, it's not yours. Shemitah, Shemitah, which means, which is translated as sabbatical year, is this word, Tishmetena. Tishmetena, Shemitah. It means release. Shemitah, if you ever want to know, what is the word Shemitah? Shemitah. Sabbatical? No, that's Shabbat. Shabbat is sabbatical. What is Shemitah? Release. Every seven years, it's released. What's released? It's not yours. Let go. It's not your land. You don't own it. You didn't make it. You didn't create it. You didn't make it. It's going to exist after you. It's not, it, it didn't come into being with your existence. It's not going to end with your demise. It's God's land. It's God's land. Every seven years, you live with that awareness. You live with that knowledge by letting go. It's not mine. It's God's. It belongs to everyone. Specifically, the Torah says, the poor of your people shall eat it. 
People can walk into the field and take whatever they want. It's not yours. The poor of your people shall eat it, and what they leave over, the beasts of the field shall eat it. Let it go to the animals. And so shall you do, not only to your fields, but so shall you do to your vineyard and to your olive trees, your olive groves. Okay, so it's not only fields, it's vineyards, it's olive groves, etc. Six days a week. Oh, moving on. Now that we talked about the sabbatical year, let's talk about the weekly sabbatical, i.e. Shabbat. Six days a week, may you do your, may, sorry, six days, you may do your work, but on the seventh day, you shall rest in order that your ox and your donkey shall rest. Look at this. Powerful. Look at the rationale. Why rest on Shabbat? Because when you rest, your animals are going to rest. And you know what? Your animals need a break. Your animals need a break. That's what they need. So, seventh day you shall rest in order that your ox and your donkey shall rest and your maidservant's son and the stranger shall be refreshed. It's going to be a day of rest, a day of being refreshed. Everyone needs that. Working 24-7 is not good for anybody. This is a rationale that the Torah gives almost for resting on the seventh day. Look, it doesn't state here that it's a testimony to the fact that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. That's stated elsewhere, like Ten Commandments. Here, what's the rationale? The rationale is because rest is good. Rest is necessary. You'll be refreshed. It's a good thing. Let's continue. Concerning all that I have said to you, you shall, be, you shall beware. Be careful with everything that I mentioned. And this is God, all God speaking to Moses to tell the people. Concerning all that I have said, you shall, be, you shall beware. And the name of the gods of others you shall not mention. No idolatrous mentions. By the way, the names of the gods of others you shall not mention. That is... Um, pursuant to our course on meditation. I mentioned in the Tuesday night session, I didn't mention this in the Thursday session, but in the Tuesday night session I mentioned that Jewish meditation is very valuable and important because classic forms of meditation, even if they're presented in secular terms, oftentimes are using mantras, names, images, techniques, um, music, whatever that's associated with other forms of idol worship, other religious practices that are, that are polytheistic by nature. The reality is, it's not, it's not, not, not calling anyone out or, or putting anything on blast. The reality is that Buddhism is not monotheism. It's just not. There are many gods in Buddhism. And so to have Buddhist chants and Buddhist mantras and Buddhist poses and all that stuff is touching, even if it's not necessarily idolatry itself, it's not worship, but it's touching on something. It's getting close. The names, look what it says right here, verse 13. The name of the gods of others you shall not mention. You should not utter the name of a god of, 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 the, of idolaters. So what happens? You're at a yoga class, you're at a meditation class, and there's a mantra. And this mantra, you don't even know, is the name of an idol, of a foreign god. It's a biblical problem. It's a problem of biblical proportions. That's why it's important, that to, first of all, to know this, to be aware of it, and to have a kosher form of it. 
All right, let's continue. It shall not be heard through your mouth. Don't utter it. Moving on. Moving on. Talking about the three pilgrimage holidays. Three times you shall slaughter sacrifices to me during the year. Three holidays, three major pilgrimage holidays. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread. You know what that is, right? Pesach, Passover. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, matzah, as I have commanded you at the appointed time of the month of springtime. Pesach is always in the spring. For then you left Egypt, and they shall not appear before me empty-handed. Make sure to bring your sacrifices. And moving on to the next holiday, the festival of the harvest. That is Sukkot. The first fruits of your labors. That's when you gather in the food, which you will sow in your field. And the festival, the ingathering at the departure of the year, when you gather in the products of your labors from your field. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. My bad. Let me, uh, let me rewind that. Um, Chag HaKatsir is the festival of cutting down the food in the field. I misspoke because it calls it here harvest, which I don't like the word harvest. Apologies to the translator. Katsir does not mean harvest. It means cutting. It's the festival of the cutting. This is not Sukkot. This is Shavuot. This is the festival, the anniversary of the, giving the Torah at Sinai. This is Shavuot. That's when they cut the wheat in the fields and then let it stay out throughout the summer months to dry out. The wheat needs to be dried out to grind it into flour. So they would, they would cut the stalks of wheat and allow it to dry out in the field throughout the summer months, and they would bring it in right before the rainy season. That's the next holiday of Sukkot. That's when you gather the products of your labors from the field. So the festival of the harvest, to me, harvest means you're taking stuff in. That's the next holiday. Harvest is you're cutting some stuff. You're cutting uh, food in the field. You're cutting the stalks of, of grain of wheat. And then the festival of the ingathering, when you gather in the, produ- the products of your labor of the field, that is Sukkot. So here we have the three pilgrimage holidays, Passover, Sukkot, sorry, keep on doing that, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Rabbi? Th- yes. Rabbi? Do you have a second to look? So I'm just uh, interested in your perspective. So all of them we use in just regular yoga. I, I put it in the chat. Um, oh. I was just wondering your perspective um, on Om and Namaste. Namaste we use as like Shalom, like just like a generic salutation. And, you know, in any old, every regular old yoga class, you know, and then Om, like we end generally, you know, like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it seems like that would be a... Uh... That would be somehow connected to some religious spiritual practice, which I, I'm not qualified. I, I'm just not qualified to say definitively either way. But I would say I would put a red flag up on that one. Namaste, I'm not sure. Uh, namaste, I'm reading. Mostly occurs as a salutation to a divinity. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like it's... That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of stuff that's sneaky that we, don't, we wouldn't even realize but could be problematic. I'm not saying for sure, you know, this should not be said, this should be said. This, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not in the position to rule definitively. I just don't know. I, I would have to learn, know much more about the topic and read up on all of the halakhic parameters of it. But to say that, to say that there's, a, there's a note of caution about it, I think is safe to say. That's for sure. 
And that's why it's important that we have our own lingo because otherwise we're just falling into practices that at the core may be straight up idolatry, which is problematic. Yeah. So I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it, it is forbidden. I'm just saying it's, it, it's something to look into. For sure, it's something to look into. And if we have other, if we have other forms, other, other visualizations or other phraseologies, I think that's a good thing. I think, I think Rabbi Label Wolf was talking about that um, when we had that live Zoom from, you know, from Melbourne a few weeks ago. He was talking about, I would have to go back to the recording, but I'm like almost certain he was talking about Jewish replacements, Hebrew replacements for some of the other um, verbiage. And I think Adina Malka asked him, what are some good phrases? And I think he gave a few. So it might be... Yeah, yesterday I was thinking, you know, there was a point where you were discussing possible phrases, I believe, at the end. Could be. I came up with, in my mind, I mean, you mentioned it in the Torah class on Wednesday, you know, we're filled with, you know, as many good deeds as a pomegranate. Right. Yeah, that's a good one. I think you just triggered a memory. I think Rabbi Wolf said, Ein od movado, which, is a, which means there's nothing else besides for God. God is the, is the only reality. That's, that's, that's spiritual as well as, so there's the, the, one, the personal one, like I am filled with goodness, essentially, and then there's God is the only true reality. And these are, these are phrases. And if you want to, you could, not you specifically, but if one would want to learn that in Hebrew, it might be a nice thing. I Listen, I've never really done other forms of this stuff. So I don't know how it's done. And, you know, like, I don't know the context exactly how it's done. But if there's a way to, to supplant or replace it, I think that would be a worthwhile thing to look into because, oh, yeah. you know, it could be, uh, it could, could be questionable. I tried, to do that. I tried to do that for my yoga class at Lamoud. So I was, we were outdoors, you know, in greenery right and so i brought I, I said something similar to what we were talking about also in a recent class oh it was i guess it was yesterday yeah about you know the meditating outdoors right right so that's what i did yeah and i said like, and isaac had the first prayer outdoors. yeah la subasada yes very good very good and the mystics and the mystics yeah. in the 15 1600s they would go outside and they would pray outside yeah in the in the in the hills in the forest the trees Good. Yeah, that's that's the that's that's a good direction. Okay, so now we're so we just um, so we're talking about the three festivals, and here we go. Seventeen, three times during the year, these three festival periods, all your males, it it um, obligates the males, adult males, all your males shall appear before the master of the Lord. Now it's open to everybody, obviously, to make the trip to Jerusalem and celebrate the holiday at the with the temple and all that stuff. But the obligation is on the men, considering that you can't always obligate the women to appear, or certainly not the children, at any given time. But the men, sure. Now, you're going to say, well, if the men go, then the women are going to be stuck at home. With, okay, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Yes, that kind of, that's what it kind of sounds like. But nonetheless, the obligation is on the males. Let's continue. You shall not sacrifice the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, with chametz, this is all year round, not only in Passover. When you bring a sacrifice, you don't bring any leaven items with it, and the fat of my festival sacrifice 
shall not stay overnight until morning, burn the fats overnight so that they're gone by the morning, by daybreak. Next, all of these are different mitzvot, by the way. It's like moving, moving, moving. The choicest of the first fruits of your soil you shall bring to the house of the Lord, your God. That is bikurim. Reish is bikurei. Bikurim. These are the first fruits. The best, not just the first fruits, the best of the first fruits you shall bring to God. And then, one more mitzvah here, before we end off this reading, you shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk, which includes, it's re- this line, prohibition, is repeated three times in Torah. One means don't cook meat and milk together. One means don't eat meat and milk together. And the other one is don't derive benefit from, or money, financial or otherwise, benefit from a mixture of milk and meat. That would preclude even owning a restaurant that cooks meat and milk together and then profiting off that sale. Okay, let's continue with reading number six. Okay, here we go. It looks like, oh yeah, good, okay. We're moving a little bit away from, um, we're moving away from the law, the legal part of it, and moving a little bit more now into the narrative. Okay, a little bit more familiar territory, at least where we've been up until now. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, God says to Moses, I am sending an angel before you. A guardian angel. Oh, to guard you on the way and to bring you to, to the place that I have prepared. I am sending an angel to be with you, guiding the way, leading you there. And that's going to be the, the, to lead you to the promised land. Literally a guardian angel for the Jewish people. Beware of him and obey him. Do not rebel against him, for he will not forgive your transgression, for my name is within him. Now, it sounds like we're ascri- God is ascribing power to this angel. Let's see if we have some Rashi here to, to, to look at. Um, oh, look at this. Behold, I am sending an angel. Rashi says, Here they were informed that they, would, that they were destined to sin, and that God would say to them, for I will not ascend in your midst. Why are suddenly we're talking about an angel? Why isn't God with us? Because at some point in time, after the, after the golden calf, God is going to say, you know what? Take an angel. I'm not interested. You go with an angel at this point. Um, okay, but do not rebel against him. Let's see. He is not accustomed to forgiveness, for he is of the group that do not sin. This angel is a perfect angel. His, um, this angel's uh, pure group, they don't mess up. So they're not, he's not used to messing up and thus not going to tolerate messing up. And moreover, he is a messenger and he can only do his mission, right? Angels are messengers anyway. So they can't really do their, um, their, own, uh, their own thing. They can only do the mission and, and they're like, kind of like purely tied into the mission. Okay, let's continue. Um, Okay, let's do it. For my name is within him. This clause is connected to the beginning of the verse. Beware of him, beware of the angel, because my name is associated with him. Our sages, however, said this is the angel Metatron. Ooh, that's a heavy angel. He's the real deal. Whose name is like the name of his master. The name, the numerology, the gematria. Ooh, look at this. The gematria of Metatron 314 is the same as God's name Shakai 314. 
Shaka is the name. This letter, this name Shindal Yud, is the name of God that's put on the mezuzah, on the outside of the mezuzah. Not the case, on the actual scroll. Look at this. By divine providence, I have scrolls right with me on my table. Kosher scrolls. Here you go. Shin, uh, here we go. Shin, Dalid, Yud. 314. <laughs> is the numerology Metatron, the angel. This Metatron, also known as Matat, Metatron, is considered to be the loftiest, most, the highest angel. That's the angel that was going to be the guardian angel of the Jewish people. There's, there's a lot more to say about angels, but I feel like that, that requires its own, its own deep dive. All right, for if you hark, I'm going to keep Rashi up here for a second. For if you hark into his voice and do all that I say, I will hate your enemies and oppress your adversaries. It's going to be good. I'll get rid of your enemies. Let me take Rashi off. Let's continue. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the Amorites, the Chittites, the Prezites, the Canaanites, the Chivites, and the Jebusites, and I will destroy them. Let's see how many nations. One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, the Emory are missing. Oh, no, Emory here. Um... Oh, Girgashi. Okay, there's one, the Girgashites. There's one, one nation that's missing here. There's seven indigenous nations. There's six mentioned here. Either way, the point is not the number. I'm just counting in my head and, and, and uh, bring you into my thought process right now. But either way, God is saying that the angel is going to go before you, before the Jewish people, and lead you to the promised land and lead you to victory against all those nations that will oppose you. Once again, a prohibition against idolatry. You notice this is a recurring theme. You shall not prostrate yourself before their gods, and you shall not worship them. Don't worship other gods, and you shall not follow their practices, but you shall tear them down. Tear down their altars, and you shall, not utter, and you shall utterly shatter their monuments, and you shall worship the Lord your God. Worship Hashem. Don't, don't fall for anything else. Just worship the Lord your God, and He will bless you. Sorry, He will bless your food and your drink, and I'll remove illness from your midst. That's a powerful blessing. When we're strict about monotheism, when we're very strict, right? Strict about nothing else, no other uh, distractions, only Hashem. Hashem says He will bless you. Um, God will bless you. Oh, God will bless your food and your drink. And I'll remove illness from your midst. So the food and the drink will be, will be healthy or whatever it is. will be bring blessing, physical blessing. And no illness, removing illness from your midst. That's a powerful blessing. Powerful blessing, all tied into monotheism. Let's continue. And as part of that blessing, there will be no bereaved or barren woman in your land. I will fill the number of your days. So the blessing for children, a blessing for not only a long life, but Filling the number of your days, it doesn't only mean you'll live a lot, many numbers of day, many number of days, like many days. It also means that those days will be filled with meaning, filled with significance, filled with purpose. Let's continue. I will send my fear before you into the other nations. Your reputation will be awesome and fearful. Uh, 
I don't know, fearful, fear-inducing for others. And I will confuse all the people among whom you shall come. And I will make your, all your enemies turn their backs to you. In other words, when you arrive, everyone's going to get confused and intimidated and they're all going to run. And your, their backs are going to be towards you because they're going to be running away from you. And I will send the tzira, the tzira before you. What is the tzira? The mosquito, the gnat. Let's see what we have here. Flying insect. Oh, I'm sorry. It was unique at that time. This was a kind of flying insect which would strike them in their eyes, inject venom into them, and they would die. Okay, maybe like killer mosquitoes, right? I think, that, I think there are killer mosquitoes or something. So these were killer bugs. They would go and they would, they would strike people in the eye and inject, inject with their little stingers venom, a, a lethal venom. Tzira did not cross, I feel like we did this recently in a class, the Tzira did not cross the yard in the Jordan River. And the Chittites and Canaanites and those of the land of Sichon and Og. Therefore, out of all the seven nations, the Torah did not count any but these. Right? That's why it says, through the Tzira, I will drive out the Chivites, Canaanites, and Hittites. As for the Chivites, although they were on the other side of the Jordan, in Tratitzot, Rabbi thought it stood on the bank of the Jordan and cast venom upon them kind of from a distance. It's like remote venom launcher. That's what was going on. Okay, let's continue. Take Rashi off for a second. Um, okay, so God is basically saying, if you go with me, if you're exclusive to me, I'll be exclusive to you. I'm going to bless you, I'll bless your health, bless your families, bless, bless your communities, and also make sure that your enemies are afraid of you and will be driven out from before you. And God says, I will not drive them away from before you in one year. No, it's not going to happen. All of a sudden, you're going to come to the land. It's going to be you know, a barren wasteland. Lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field outnumber you. If I remove all the nations right now before you get in there, before you settle, before you, 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 you set down your encampment or your homes throughout the entire land of Israel, what's going to happen is it's going to be overrun with desolation. The land is going to be un, um, untamed. The land is going to be uncultivated. Un, uh, it's going to be barren at some point, And the animals are going to take over the cities. I will drive them out rather, God says. I will drive them out from before you little by little, one nation at a time as you advance, until you have increased and can occupy the land. Then it will be yours. And I will make your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land. Your, these are big, pretty big borders for the land of Israel. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hands, and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall not form a covenant for them or for their gods. Don't make a deal. Okay, you know, we'll allow some idolatry next door to the synagogue, next door to the temple. We'll have, you know, all the faiths and all that stuff. No, God did not have that intention. I'm not speaking about modern times. This is not, uh, you know, this is not I'm, not, I'm not taking a stance here. I'm just saying God's perspective in the Torah, God's vision of Israel as a Jewish land is exclusively monotheistic. No space for idolatry. They shall not dwell in your land lest they cause you to sin against me that you will worship their gods. In other words, if they're still serving idols and, and the risk is that they're going to try to schlep you along or you're going to get attracted to idolatry, then they cannot live there. Right? That which will be a snare for you. That's going to be not good. It won't be healthy. It will be a snare. It will be a trap. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't let them be there. Don't let them serve idols. Don't let them 
be uh, even potentially a negative influence against monotheism. Exodus chapter 24, let's continue. And here we get away from the law and talk about the narrative. It's interesting that this week's Torah portion actually details some elements of the Sinai experience at the end of Mishpatim, we're talking about some details that are relevant to last week's narrative of the revelation at Sinai. Last week was all about revelation at Sinai, the, the preamble, the experience, and the post-game show. And then this week, we have all these laws. But now, we're going to go back a little bit. Go back to Sinai. And to Moses, God said, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadav and Abiyo, the seventy elders of Israel, and prostrate yourselves from Afar. Give me one second, my friends. Give me one second. Hello? Can I call you right back? I'm just finishing up a class. Yeah. I'll, call, I'll call you right back. Okay, bye. All right. It's my son. I figured it was him who's in camp in Florida. One of my sons who's in camp in Florida. And uh, actually, Ellie. So I'm going to call him back in a few minutes as soon as we're finished. Okay. Just letting you, just bring you into to my life and my phone call. So God says to Moses, come up. This is come up the mountain, Mount Sinai. Come up, you and Aaron, another one of you, some of the elders, and prostrate yourselves from afar. So come up a little bit, but keep a distance. And Moses alone shall approach the Lord, but they shall not approach. And the people, of course, they shall not ascend with him. They need to remain at the foot of the mountain. So Moses came. Again, this is going back. This is before sign, before the Ten Commandments. This is... Getting ready. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. In other words, what, what was going to happen. And all the people answered in unison and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Nasa, we're in. Also last week we were then. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 monuments for the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where we see that Moses started writing the Torah. This is where he starts writing this. He starts writing what God has communicated. This becomes the origin of the Torah scrolls that we have. And he sent the youths of the children of Israel, and they offered up burnt offerings, and they slaughtered peace offerings to the Lord, bulls. And Moses took half the blood and put into the basins, and half the blood he cast onto the altar, and he took the book of the covenant. Rabbi? Yes. So Moses writing the Torah, yeah. is that... The same as when the Torah was engraved in the tablets? Well, the, what was engraved in the tablets was only the script of the Ten Commandments. This is much more. This is the rest of Torah as we know it. So the tablets... The did, he didn't do the engraving, right, Moses? Not in the tablets, no. God did the engraving. That was only the Ten Commandments. But right. the Torah scroll is what Moses did. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so they offered sacrifices, okay, and he took the Book of the Covenant, which is probably the, whatever Torah he wrote, and read it within the hearing of the people, and they said, all, the, all that the Lord spoke, we will do and we will hear. And Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people, I guess toward the people, and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has formed with you concerning these words, almost like sealed in blood is the covenant between the children of Israel and, and, and God Almighty. And Moses and Aaron, other than Abiyo, and the seventy elders of Israel ascended the mountain, ascended the mountain, and they perceived the God of Israel, and beneath his feet, as if God has feet, right? But beneath, whatever that means, was like the forming of a sapphire brick, like the appearance of the heavens for clarity. 
Once again, we have stones, right? Sapphire. It was like sapphire underneath the divine Yay. revelation. Oh. See that? Um, so the, the, scroll, uh, the, the Ten Commandments were engraved on sapphire. The Ten Commandments were also, at least the second tablets were sapphire. Second yeah. Tablet. yeah. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. And they perceived God and they ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me to the mountain and remain there. This is where God tells Moses after the revelation at Sinai, okay, that I want you to come back up the mountain and remain there. This is where he remains 40 days and 40 nights. And I will give you, per our conversation a moment ago, Donna, right? I will give you, God says, the stone tablets, the law and the, com and the commandments, which I've written to instruct them. So God says, come up. I'm going to teach you the rest of Torah, the rest of the mitzvot. And give you the stone tablets with the engraving of these commandments, the ten, i.e. the Ten Commandments, which I have written to instruct them. So Moses and Joshua, his servant, arose, and Moses ascended to the Mount of God. So they both approached, but Moses went all the way up. And to the elders he said, Wait for us here until we return to you, and here Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever is the case, let him go to them. They're in charge. Aaron and Hur are in charge. This is foreshadowing the golden calf, where... Um, they approach Aaron. Aaron said, they, they, well, wait, let's make another god. And Aaron says, uh, tomorrow. And Hor starts fighting with him. They kill Hor. They kill Hor. And then Aaron somehow is, gets schlepped into the whole golden calf situation. Anyway, but they were left in charge. And didn't end well, but they were left in charge. And Moses, yeah, he went up the mountain. And the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And he called to Moses on the seventh day from within the cloud. So six days, there was no voice, no communication. On the seventh, God calls out to Moses. And the appearance of the, of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire atop the mountain before the eyes of the children of Israel. Imagine Moses goes up and there's all this cloud and fire. You can imagine the, uh, the vision. And Moses came within the cloud. And he went up to the mountain. And Moses was, was upon the mountain 40 days and 40 nights in total. That takes us to the end of the Torah portion. This, of course, precipitates the sin of the golden calf because Moses is up there 40 days and 40 nights, but the people miscalculated and they thought he was coming. They, they counted day one as day one, the day that he went up as day one. And so 40 days, they got to an earlier count. Day one wasn't day one. It was the next day because he didn't spend the full day on top of the mountain. So that first half day was no day. You're only supposed to count from the second day and so they were off by a day, and then they sinned with the golden calf. But we're not going to get to the golden calf to a few more Torah portions. Two more in between. Why? Because next week, Truma is where God commands Moses to tell the people, <clears throat> to tell the people to build a mishkan, a temple, a home, tabernacle, a home for God. With all of the 13 or 15 items, the gold, the silver, the copper, the gemstones, all that stuff, and the materials and the fabrics and the animal skins, all of that salon, all of that, uh, all of the artisans, all of the artists, collaboration, collaboration, all of the art, artistry, the artisanship was involved in creating this home for God. That's going to come next week, Truma and Tetzava. And then we do Golden Calf, and then we get back to the actual building of the Mishkan, and the story rolls on. All right, so what did we learn today? Oof. Let me, uh, hold on one second. 
Hey, could you hold on for one second? What? Could you hold on for a minute? Just stay on the phone, okay? Okay. All right, stay with me. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna close out because I, I gotta I gotta grab this. But um, in in summation, the Torah reminds us not to other anyone, to honor the stranger, to be a mensch, even as lofty as we think you know Judaism is, spirituality and you know God and mountains and clouds and fires and revelations and tablets and Torahs. At the end of the day, you gotta be a mensch. The end of the day, you gotta be a mensch. So we have the high of Sinai and the low of low, not really a low, but the low being a mensch. So let's, uh, let's embrace the mishpatim in our lives to act civilly to each other and really make this world a civilized place, a home for Hashem. All right. Thank you for joining me today. Um, looking forward to seeing um, some of you tonight for the Shabbat dinner. Um, Sarah, I know it's a big schlep from Florida, but nonetheless, um, at some point we'll, uh, we'll welcome you to Atlanta. You know, who knows, uh, what travel might, might bring, but either way, looking forward to celebrating tonight. Shabbat, we'll be back next week. Please God, Monday morning, Monday noon for, uh, DPP, Peachy Parsha, Sunday Kabbalah and Coffee. I think we have a pretty normal schedule. We have a book club. We have Rosh Chodesh Society, all that good stuff. Okay. Signing off. We'll see you guys. Have a good Shabbos, everyone. You guys have a lovely night. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Shabbat shalom.